Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Jordan. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. Every year, the U.S. Supreme Court begins its review of important legal cases which it chooses to review on October 1st and concludes those reviews on June 30th. During each of those sessions, the court will release a host of rulings which will have wide and lasting impacts on our understanding of constitutional rights within the United States. When June 30th rolled around this year, the court had issued several rulings which will have a significant conservative impact on many constitutional protections upon which many Americans have come to rely. It is to be remembered that the political composition of the Supreme Court has undergone a significant and radical political shift. And this has accounted for the sudden but expected shifts on some important areas of the law. Tonight, we're going to discuss some of these decisions and their likely impact upon the rule of law as we understand that at this point. In coming decisions, greater clarity will be provided, but for the opinions which we will discuss tonight, there have already been many negative reactions. So joining us for this discussion are two of our constitutional law experts from the North Carolina Central University School of Law. It's Professor Don Corbett, who teaches constitutional law and critical race theory, and Professor Tamika Moses, who teaches criminal procedure and evidence. So thank you to both of you for joining us for this discussion this evening. Let me um, start us out because I know that both of you have been intimately engaged in the court watching process which has consumed the legal uh, and activist communities over the past year. Starting out, what is your overall reaction to what is projected or what is the projected impact of some of these decisions from the, uh, from the court that we have seen uh, this, uh, this session? So why don't we start with uh, Professor Corbin. Thanks, Professor Joyner, and I appreciate the invite and have an opportunity to talk about some of these things. I think ultimately this is going to go down as one of the most consequential terms in the history of the court. I think the issue is really going to be whether it's remembered as a very famous period for the court or an infamous period for the court, and we won't know that for quite some time. I think one of the things that has stood out to me from the beginning of the year is really just there seems to have been more drama associated with the court publicly that you more commonly associate with the other branches of government. Uh, so, you know, the year starts out with several justices out in public space proclaiming that the court is really different and we're not just a group of partisan hacks. And then they spend the year going out and delivering decisions that at least make them look hackish, if not partisan hacks. And and I think when you take that and you, you take the leaking of the early version of, of the draft opinion that ultimately overturned Roe v. Wade, that's never happened in the court before. You had the wife of Justice Clarence Thomas, who appeared to either want to be heavily involved or was heavily involved in the planning and the execution of the January 6th insurrection. In that case, gets a, a case involving that matter gets before the court involving the issue of executive privilege and Justice Thomas not only fails to recuse himself, but he also is the only justice to vote that the information should have been shielded from the public. So was he acting on behalf of what he thought was the law or was he trying to protect his wife? We 
we'll never know. So it wasn't all bad <clears throat> in the sense that, you know, we also had Katanji Brown Jackson elevated to the court, making her the first African-American woman to sit on the bench and in our nation's history. It's also the first time in history uh, that the court has had four women on the bench at the same time. Uh, so, so that obviously is a, is a positive <clears throat> historical note, but uh, it does, it appears to me that, that once Amy Coney Barrett got appointed, it, they just kind of looked around at each other and said, I think it's time to shoot our shot. And <laughs> that's what they've been doing ever since. Okay. Uh, Professor Moses, uh, what, uh, <laughs> what is your overall view of uh, where the, uh, court has uh, taken us up to this point. Uh, Professor Joyner, I'm trying not to be hyperbolic here, and I really, my intention is not to be. Um, but when I think about this term and what the court has done, all I think of is a lot of these de um, decisions have been catastrophic, right? At the individual level, you have women stripped of their right to choose, the right to bodily autonomy, the right to do things that they decide in their private um, homes. Um, you also have criminal defendants being right, rights being curtailed as it relates to the Sixth Amendment right to counsel, Fifth Amendment right to self-incrimination under Miranda. Uh, you have the EPA being told that they can't do what they were created to do, right? There's, there's all of these rights that are either being stripped away entirely, right, or being circumscribed in such a way that they're no longer effective or no longer something that we can consider <laughs> a constitutional right. Um, so on the individual level, I would say catastrophic, but also on a larger level, what's the legitimacy of the court, right? Professor Corbett kind of spoke to this already. When you think about the political appointees, the most recent justices, excluding Judge Jackson, Justice Jackson, of course, who have been appointed, they have started to engage in making sure that they check the boxes as it relates to the agenda that they were sent to the court to deliver on. Um, and so legitimacy of the court is really at issue here. Um, part of that is because of what has been done through these political appointees, but also the other part of that is because the court is not even following its own precedent anymore, right? So <laughs> what do we do when all that we've learned, all that we believed is that precedent is binding, we follow the precedent, and that's how the law is built. That is, how, that is the, legit, that is the um, foundation of the legitimacy of the court. When that is shattered, um, when there's hints that the court is even willing to go further in that respect and do even more damage um, to binding precedent, where does that leave us as a nation of laws? And that's my overall impression. Yeah, yeah it's uh, a lot of questions uh, swirling around, a lot of uh, uh, consternation, uh, head shaking and uh, backbiting uh, that's, uh, that's going on. So. But let's let's start uh, with a, a review of uh, of some of these cases and uh, our audience. What we have done is to kind of allow each of us to choose uh, our favorite or our most infamous uh, decision and uh, to kind of uh, volunteer to uh, talk about it. So we're going to run back to uh, Professor Corbett and uh, let him uh, lead us all uh, with his, uh, his top case uh, from uh, this, uh, this term. And there are so many uh, from which he could choose. So, Professor uh, Corbett, uh, what say ye? Well, I hesitate to call it top <laughs> for lots of reasons, but, but it probably is the most consequential because of the overturning of Roe v. Wade is clearly the case that's gotten the most public attention and maybe have, maybe has generated the most public consternation, although, as Professor Moses said, there's a lot of cases in there competing for that particular award. So just to kind of summarize, the right to terminate a pregnancy has been enshrined in constitutional law since 1973. Uh, the idea was that it is a privacy right and an autonomy right that's protected under the person's uh, right to liberty that's expressed in the due process clause of the Constitution. So Roe extended that privacy right to a woman's right to terminate a pregnancy. And then 20 years later, a case called uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey affirmed Roe in some major ways and then also said that, uh, that and, and tweaked some of Roe's basic premises. 
uh, one of which was it said that states can't uh, ban abortion outright while the woman is in what's called the pre-viability stage. Uh, now, Casey said that, that states can regulate uh, abortion in that pre-viability stage as long as that regulation doesn't create an undue burden to the woman's right to terminate. So once the baby can survive outside the womb, which that's what the word viability means, and that usually is around 22 to 24 weeks, then Casey said you could have a lot more latitude as a state to regulate the process. So this term, the, the court reviewed a Mississippi law that banned abortion after 15 weeks, which is clearly well inside the line of viability that was established by Casey. And the court was originally asked in the petition to move the viability line and uphold the law. And the court decided not only to say yes to that, but they also were able to find five votes uh, to overrule Roe entirely. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts was the sixth vote to uphold the Mississippi law, but he did not join the majority in overruling Roe entirely. And the ripple effects of this are, are tremendous. Not only, I, I don't think the court has ever revoked the constitutional right that it once granted, uh, but it did so. And by saying that the constitution doesn't protect it, it now means that states have the ability to regulate it. So it essentially moves abortion from a national right that's available to all women to a regional right that's available to some women. So in the South, in the Midwest, Plains area, it's going to be very, very difficult to get an abortion, whereas on the coasts and in the northeast part of the country, there'll be more access to that procedure uh, for the people who live in those states. Uh, now, that in some ways is kind of an oversimplification, Professor Joyner, because we still don't know how, how aggressive states are going to be in trying to enforce these bans. About 40% of abortions now occur by way of medication as opposed to surgical procedures. So will we now see states try to keep women from going into other states to get the procedures done? Will they try to catch stuff that's delivered by mail? Will they try to, you know, will they try to regulate telehealth from, from a patient in state A to a, to a doctor in state B? You know, and all that stuff is tricky because the drugs that now are used to terminate uh, pregnancies have all been approved by the FDA. So the question is, if you come up with such a law like that, does it violate the Commerce Clause or, or some other federal interest in place? We just don't know, uh, but it's, it's not over yet. It's not over yet. And in the larger picture, the question is, how broad will this decision reach to attack other rights? And the reason I say that is because the court has said that if it's not in the verbiage of the Constitution, that it's not a right that's rooted, or it's not a right that's rooted in our country's historical traditions, then it's not a right that should be recognized by the court. Well, that pulls in a lot of other stuff. Uh, the right to marry who you want to, uh, the right to contraception. In, in, his con in his concurrence in the Dobbs case, which overruled Roe v. Wade, Justice Thomas seemed to throw out a welcome mat anybody that wanted to challenge some of that other stuff too. So I'm not sure how many justices are with him, but I also think as Professor Moses alluded earlier, you know, anything is possible at this point. So because the framework for Roe is also the legal framework for some other stuff that's out there, uh, I think it's fair to ask whether those, those rights are in jeopardy as well. Wow, thank you. That's uh, ceiling, standing alone. Um, On that good news, right? <laughs> and now we go to Professor Moses to uh, further sink our head into the sand. So, uh, <laughs> Professor Moses, what what's your top top case uh, after uh, after Don? So, I'm focusing more on the criminal procedure space, of course, uh, with my cases that I've identified. Um, and the top one that I want to discuss is Shen v. Martinez Ramirez, which is related to the Sixth Amendment right to counsel. Um, and before I talk about what the court did in Shin, I got to go back a little bit just to talk about the ineffective claims generally. Um, so when you think about the Sixth Amendment right to counsel, of course, it's not the right just to have anybody sit at defense counsel's table and say, I'm here on behalf of the defense, right? It's the right to, some, um, to have counsel that will be effective, that will litigate the case properly, that will protect the criminal defendant's rights throughout the trial process and ensure that their constitutional rights are protected. Um, after a conviction, criminal defendants kind of take two paths to reverse those convictions when it relates to ineffective assistance of counsel. Um, on the state side, of course, in the post-conviction proceedings, either on the direct appeal or collateral appeal, such as post-conviction um, proceedings, defendant will have to show that, one, their counsel was indeed ineffective and that ineffectiveness 
prejudiced um, their case and therefore you know, caused the conviction. Um, once they exhaust the state remedies, the defendant may then go into the federal court through the habeas process to essentially allege the same claim. Um, as it relates to ineffective assistance of counsel claims in particular, um, the Supreme Court, Congress, all entities have been very clear that the court, the trial court in federal court is very um, limited in their review of whether or not counsel has been ineffective. And a lot of that review is based on the record that is established in the state court proceedings. The issues that, that is raised in Shin is something that's been going on um, throughout the court since I believe 2011, 2012 timeframe. Um, and the issue is this, if there's a right to counsel at the trial proceeding, is there a right to counsel also in post-conviction proceedings at the state level? Supreme Court has been very clear that the answer is no. But the, the problem that Shin presents is when you have ineffective assistance of counsel at the trial level in state court, but also at the post-conviction level in state court, right? So not only is your trial lawyer terrible, but your post-conviction lawyer is also terrible. Um, in that respect, the court carved out a very limited exception in a case called Martinez, um, where they said in a situation where you have a state that doesn't allow you to raise your ineffective assistance of counsel claim on direct appeal, then you essentially can raise that claim in the federal court during the habeas process. Um, and so when you think about that case, that was in 2012. And at the time, Justices Roberts and Alito joined in the majority opinion saying, yes, this is a limited exception. We're willing to permit this. Um, Justices Scalia and Thomas, on the other hand, were like, no, this is not permitted. There is no right to counsel in post-conviction proceedings. Therefore, we would not allow this limited exception. Martinez was a law of the land. Um, and when Shin came along, the Ninth Circuit assumed that they would be able to apply Martinez to Shin's situation because, excuse me, to Martinez's situation because it was essentially the same thing. It was an Arizona law that said you cannot raise your ineffective assistance of counsel claim in post-conviction proceedings. So the first time they could raise the claim was, excuse me, in the direct appeal. So the first time they could raise the claim was in post-conviction proceedings. At that time, Martinez Ramirez, his counsel, as well as uh, defendant Jones, had counsel that was ineffective both at the trial level and at the post-conviction level. And so the district court applying Martinez in the habeas proceeding said, applying Martinez, we're allowed to review your case for ineffective assistance of counsel on the merits, and the district court proceeded to do so. What the federal court did um, was basically follow the law of Martinez that the Supreme Court issued in 2012. However, this term, taking a second look at Martinez and the exception that was created, uh, the majority here, written by Justice Thomas, um, said, no, you know, you cannot have this evidentiary hearing. You cannot raise um, this ineffective assistance of counsel claim on the, at the habeas level um, because primarily there's no Sixth Amendment right to counsel in post-conviction proceedings. Because there's no Sixth Amendment right to counsel in post-conviction post proceedings, Anything or any failure to develop a record at the state level to bring in the evidence you want to bring into federal court at the state level falls on the prisoner. What does that mean in layman's terms? What it means is if you have an effective counsel at trial table at your trial and you also have an effective counsel in your post-conviction proceeding, if they fail to bring in evidence of your innocence, for example, too bad, so sad, right? You cannot bring that into federal court for the federal court to consider it. Um, and so essentially what the Thomas did with this particular opinion is kind of weighed out Martinez, right? In 2012, they dissented. Um, there was another case, I believe the name was Trevino in 2013, similar set of facts. Again, Martinez was applied, Thomas and Scalia dissented. The only thing that has changed really at this particular point is the makeup of the court, right? So now the dissenting opinion that says no Sixth Amendment right to counsel and post-conviction proceedings, no matter what, is going to apply. Um, so when you think about this particular case, if you have someone like Mr. Jones, who's one of the defendants in this case, who has evidence of potential exculpatory evidence to show that he's actually innocent of the crime that he was convicted of committing, the federal court has no remedy available to him, right? So right now he is sitting on death row with evidence that has the potential to exonerate him and he can't do anything with it because of this particular decision. 
Um, so again, it kind of falls in line with the theme of this term, which is I know what the precedent says, but we're gonna do this because, and that's essentially what happened in this particular case. Thank you for further chilling information. This is the uh, Legal Legal Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And uh, we are reviewing some of the recent decisions from the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, we're going to continue uh, that uh, discussion when we come back. We're gonna take our break. I want you to stay with us and we look forward to seeing you on the other side. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the Legal Evil Review, where we are engaged in a chilling discussion of some of the uh, decisions from the uh, U.S. Uh, Supreme Court during its 2021-2022 session. And we are picking out some of the uh, key cases, at least to us, uh, that we wanted to uh, discuss with you this evening. Uh, these are uh, summary discussions, uh, they're not in depth. Uh, and uh, we certainly urge you uh, to, uh, to read uh, these uh, opinions um, and, uh, and find out for yourself exactly what the uh, justices uh, have said. Uh, so we're gonna continue our uh, dissection of these cases and uh, Professor Dawson, Dean Dawson uh, is now up uh, for uh, her number one uh, case for review. All right, so uh, many cases to choose from. Uh, so the one that I'm gonna start off with is Carson v. Macon. And so this is a case that involved a main law that related to government funds being used for tuition at public um, or private secondary schools. So Maine, which is one of the most rural states in the country, has some counties that don't have uh, public secondary schools. And to ensure that every child has um, access to free education, Maine has this law that says it will pay tuition at private secondary schools. However, the private schools have to be approved. And in order to be approved, the schools cannot be religious schools. So a couple of families filed a lawsuit against Maine because they wanted to use those government funds to send their children to private schools that were religious private schools. Um, Maine, in order to avoid a violation of the Establishment Clause, which basically says that states cannot endorse or uh, promote religion, said that these government funds cannot be used for religious affiliated private schools. This is not an uncommon situation. We've seen this before. There have been previous Supreme Court decisions where the court has had to decide 
this tension between the free exercise clause, so allowing individuals to exercise their religious beliefs or allowing um, businesses to be able to exercise their religious beliefs. And the question is, can the state prohibit the use of governmental funds or governmental benefits such that the state is not violating the establishment clause? Uh, what the Supreme Court decided in this case is that Maine cannot distinguish between private religious schools and private non-sectarian schools, so schools that don't have um, an affiliation with some religion. So in a 6-3 decision authored by Chief Justice Roberts, the court declared that the Maine law was a violation of the free exercise clause. Now, this is a case that we, we knew it was coming um, in terms of the school's determination. There was a case that was decided by the Supreme Court um, not too long ago. The, let's see, it was Trinity Lutheran Church. And that was a case where the court was deciding or where the court decided whether funds that were being used to um, supply or to provide for playgrounds at various um, schools that the state could not distinguish between those schools that needed the resources that were uh, private um, non-sectarian schools or religious schools. Um, what was interesting about that case, which was also authored by Chief Justice Roberts, is the court said in that case, there was a footnote and Chief Justice Roberts said, this is a case that is just dealing with playgrounds. We, it is not going beyond you know, the uh, framework that's presented in this case. Notwithstanding that footnote, we see the court's decision um, in the case here in Carson v. Macon. Um, this is another example of where we see the court moving in a very conservative direction. Um, one of the things that both Professor Corbett and Professor Moses have emphasized is that the court is um, very comfortable with uh, moving very fast in terms of changing the constitutional jurisprudence as it relates to these constitutional amendments that we have seen um, have been at issue. So when we think about the free exercise clause and the establishment clause, um, and we think about what other cases the court is going to decide where we see this tension between how government funds are being used. So here we see it in the, cool, in the school context. When you think about any situation where the government is providing government funding, are we gonna see a situation where the government will be forced to um, provide that same type of funding to religious institutions. So an example where we might see that is uh, when the government provides for funding to maintain historic um, buildings. So there are many states that say, we will provide funding for these historic buildings as long as they are not um, religious institutions. Well, these are cases that we're probably gonna see at some point in the future, where if you have a church that is a historic building are they going to be able to demand government funding as well? And these are churches that, you know, or these, these are buildings that are being used currently by churches. And so we're seeing this blurring of the line when it comes to the establishment clause. So we've got the free exercise clause, which is becoming even more robust. And we see the establishment clause being quite frankly diluted. And so we can kind of predict what may very well happen in the future when we see cases involving the tension between these two um, constitutional provisions. Okay, well, another big uh, change from the uh, precedents of uh, the past. I'm, I'm gonna just uh, talk about quickly a, uh, a case that does not represent a big departure from the uh, past, and that is uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. And the uh, Bruin decision had to do with a uh, New York uh, uh, state law, which required that in order to uh, own or carry a weapon in that state, that you had to get a license from the uh, uh, police department, 
which would uh, authorize you to carry a uh, or possess a, uh, a weapon, a, a firearm, and that in order to do so, uh, you had to present some special reason why you were uh, in need of the uh, permission to carry a gun. Uh, this uh, act is one that is probably replicated in about six states uh, in the country. In most states in the country, uh, you are free to uh, carry a uh, firearm and, uh, and own a firearm. And then you can, in many of these states, carry it openly uh, in, uh, in public. And North Carolina is one of those states where you have the right to own and carry uh, a weapon if it is visible. If you are carrying a concealed weapon in these other states, then you have to get a license uh, to do so or permission to, uh, to do so. But there is the presumption that you have the right to carry. In New York, there was not the presumption that you had the right to, uh, to carry. And in uh, prior decisions from the uh, U.S. Supreme Court in uh, District of Columbia versus Heller and McDonald versus uh, Chicago, uh, the court said that the Second Amendment uh, allowed every person to own a firearm uh, and to have it in, uh, in their home. It did not speak to the notion of uh, outside uh, carry, even though many states allowed it. Uh, so ba basically, 44 uh, states uh, allow for people to carry a uh, firearm. So it was not particularly surprising when the Supreme Court struck down the uh, New York state law uh, as it was uh, drafted at, uh, at that time. So this is not a wide departure, although a lot of people were alarmed at the rationale presented by the court as to why you should uh, be able to carry uh, and own a gun uh, in your home and in the public, although it was kind of uh, forecasted by the uh, Heller and the uh, McDonald decision that uh, we have previously dealt with. And again, in North Carolina, there is a North Carolina constitutional right for every person to own and carry uh, a gun. And if uh, you uh, unless you are under 18 years of age, and that's a firearm. Long guns are different. Rifles, uh, that's different. Uh, other people, anyone can uh, own a rifle and carry a rifle in public because typically that's not uh, concealed. So, so that was not a departure uh, that was scary in the same manner as the uh, other decisions that uh, my colleagues have uh, presented to us. And with that, we want to jump back to uh, Professor Corbett uh, to uh, get his uh, number two case uh, that uh, he finds uh, worthy of some discussion and presentation to you uh, this evening. Sure. Thanks, Professor Joyner. The, the number two case actually relates in some ways to the case that Dean Dawson spoke to out of Maine. And it has to do with this intersection between an individual's religious rights and the, uh, the, the right to be free from government intrusion in that context, but also uh, what's called the Establishment Clause, which is the government not acting in such a way that it endorses certain religions or the idea of a religious principle over a non-religious principle. And this involved a football coach, I believe in the state of Washington. Since the early 60s, the court has pretty steadfastly said that prayer in public schools violates uh, the establishment clause that I just referenced a second ago. The idea is that if the teacher leads a prayer, then it essentially has the effect of coercing students to participate regardless of what their faith is. So this term, the court, as Professor Dawson mentioned, uh, had several opinions that buttressed the idea of religious liberty in these spaces. And the Kennedy case involved a football coach uh, at the end of games, he would go out to midfield and pray. Now, initially he did it by himself, but after a while, the players would join him, sometimes from both teams, and the school district asked him to stop or wait until after the crowd leaves to pray because they were worried about the constitutional violation of violating the Establishment Clause. So he stood down for a little bit, but then he told the district he was going to continue praying at midfield. And by then, 
the matter had gained some traction publicly and it became sort of a spectacle. And then when he went out to pray at the end of games, people were pouring out of the stands to get on the field to pray with him in support of it. So the district ended up placing him on administrative leave and then the school system didn't renew his contract. So he ends up suing after he didn't get his contract renewed. And he says that that the school district violated his First Amendment rights to what Professor Dawson rightly called free exercise. And uh, the court ended up siding with the coach. They said that his desire to pray was sincere and the district was restricting him from doing so and essentially targeting his conduct for religious reasons as opposed to applying some kind of a neutral rule. Uh, and the prayers came during a period, the court said that coaches were, were free to engage in private speech. So the prayer counted as a part of that private speech. So like several of the other cases we talked about today, this case essentially overruled another case that was about 50 years old that it outlined how such cases are evaluated called uh, Lemon v. Kurtzman. So again, it's a sea change. Uh, the, the public schools uh, now have to be concerned about to whom they end up giving funding in a way that they didn't before because the court has completely reframed this question. It used to be that if the school provided uh, any kind of aid or comfort to a religious entity in some way or shape or form, it was gonna violate the establishment clause. Now what they're doing is saying, okay, if the schools punish these individual rights uh, or refuses to allow aid to go to religious entities in some way, shape or form, the question is, are you violating the free exercise clause rights of those who are doing the challenging? And the court is coming down on the side of those who challenge the law just about every time. So as Professor Dawson said, it really is blurring the line between church and state considerably. And it's not at this point crazy to ask if and when prayer is now going to be permitted outright in public schools, because that seems to be the direction we're headed in. If I got time, can I mention one more thing real quickly? Okay. And I hope I'm not, I hope I'm not stepping on any other part of the program. But the reason this is salient is because the court has agreed next term to hear a case out of Colorado involving a baker who refused to make a cake, a specialty wedding cake for a same-sex couple. He said he it was against his religion to do it. And the case went up before the court like a year or two ago, and they sent it back down to Colorado to deal with what really could be more of a procedural issue. But now it's the court has agreed to take it again. And the idea is, that he's alleging is that if you make me make this cake for them, uh, the Colorado law in question says that you can't discriminate against a person on the basis of sexual orientation, among other things. And he's saying, if you make me bake this cake for them, you're essentially violating my free exercise rights because I don't believe in same-sex marriage. So if the court recognizes that free exercise right in that context, then it opens the door up to a slew of other possibilities for businesses excluding individuals from being served at restaurants because they're black or uh, at other places because they're women or because they're trans or whatever the case may be. So uh, the cases we've seen thus far don't really bode well for that particular decision, but I suppose hope springs eternal. All right, you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about the most recent Supreme Court term, 2021 to 2022. And we have with us here in our Zoom studio, our colleagues, Professor Don Corbett, who teaches constitutional law and critical race theory, and Professor Tamika Moses, who teaches criminal procedure and evidence. We're gonna take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks and I'm currently A2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your community spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. 
More information about any legal program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with two of our distinguished distinguished colleagues here at NCCU School of Law, Professor Tamika Moses, who is a constitutional law expert, and she teaches criminal procedure and evidence, and Professor Don Corbett, also a constitutional law expert, and he teaches critical race theory and constitutional law. And we've been talking this hour about the most recent Supreme Court term and some of the most consequential cases to come out of the court in many decades. So Professor Moses, you are next up to share with us uh, the second case that you wanted to kind of talk about. Yes, so my second case is Vega v. Tacoa, uh, which deals with the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination broadly, but more specifically Miranda um, and how it should be considered by the court. Uh, so just brief in terms of facts, uh, Mr. Takoa was accused of assaulting a colleague um, in a Los Angeles hospital. Um, he was eventually questioned by Deputy Vega, who is the um, plaintiff in this particular case. Um, and Deputy Vega questioned uh, Mr. Takoa without giving him the Miranda warnings, right? The ones we know you have the right to remain silent, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he did get a statement out of Mr. Takoa. It was then used at trial against Mr. Tacoa, but he was eventually acquitted. Um, after his acquittal, Mr. Tacoa kind of took this avenue through the civil process that we have under Section 1983. It's actually 42 U.S.C. 1983, which provides plaintiffs who have been acquitted or wrongfully accused of crimes um, to go to the court and file some kind of complaint against the law enforcement official or someone else in that capacity who violated a constitutional right. Um, and his key claim was that the fact that his statement was offered during his trial without Miranda warnings in and of itself constituted a constitutional violation, which is one of the elements that has to be proven to satisfy or to actually sufficiently allege a 1983 claim. Um, unfortunately for Mr. Tacoa, he found himself in the middle of this battle that's been kind of brewing on the court for quite some time. Um, and it's this ultimate question as to whether or not Miranda itself is a constitutional rule, right? Or a set of prophylactic rules, as they like to call it, meant to merely protect the Fifth Amendment. Um, and when they use that term, I like to tell my students, think of it as an umbrella, right? Miranda is the umbrella that protects your Fifth Amendment rights to self-incrimination. It's not the actual constitutional right itself. And that's really what the court has been saying over the years since Miranda was decided in 1966. Um, so the Ninth Circuit actually disagreed um, and stated that Miranda was based in constitutional law, therefore it was sufficient to satisfy this 1983 claim that Mr. Tacoa had. Um, and they relied in part, as does the dissent in this particular case, in a case of Dickerson v. United States that was cited back in 2000. Um, in that case, the majority said, again, Miranda was a constitutional decision. It was anchored in constitutional law. Also, it is precedent, so we're going to use that precedent to apply to this particular case in Dickerson. Um, the issue in Dickerson was a little different because Congress had passed a statute shortly after Miranda trying to essentially erase <laughs> the Miranda rule requirements and just said, listen, we're going to go with the original test as to whether or not the confession was voluntary um, when determining whether or not a federal um, trial can use a confession that was um, acquired without Miranda rights. Um, and again, in that case, in Dickerson, the court said, Miranda's precedent is bound in constitutional law. We're following it in the end of the story. In Mr. Tacoa's case, however, um, in an opinion drafted by Justice Alito, um, they say no, right? They go back to this original rule or, or set of decisions that said essentially Miranda is not a constitutional right itself. It's merely the set of rules meant to protect the Fifth Amendment right to self-incrimination. 
Um, and I'll say briefly that the, the, the main thrust of the argument behind it being more of a pro prophylactic rule is that Miranda was seen as being more broad than the Fifth Amendment right to self-incrimination, right? When you think about the Fifth Amendment right, it's limited to the introduction of confessions that were coerced out of someone, right? And when you think of Miranda, it's more expansive. It doesn't matter if it's voluntary or not. If you fail to provide those warnings, you typically cannot um, introduce that statement at trial, right? Now, everyone knows after Miranda, there's a whole bunch of exceptions. <laughs> and the strength of that particular opinion has been kind of weakened over time. Um, but as it relates to whether or not Miranda is a constitutional right, the court has said in this uh, Vega case, unequivocally, that it is not. Um, so again, it's not a, a wide shift from what has been stated in prior opinions. All it really does is solidify the court's opinion at, right now as to whether or not it is a constitutional right. So what does it mean? On the civil level, it means that if your uh, Mirandai statement is introduced at trial and you are acquitted, quite simply, you don't have a 1983 claim to file, right? You can't hold these people accountable civilly. But on the criminal side, it really is business as usual as, as, as I see it, right? You're still applying Miranda and its progeny, Miranda and as many exceptions um, to all confessions that are acquired during the criminal process. Right. You know, they, 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 they're still chilling because it takes away a remedy uh, that heretofore was available uh, to people, even though it was in the civil uh, arena. Uh, it is a um, minimizing of the uh, power to go to court to redress wrongs committed uh, against you. And that leads us back uh, to uh, Dee Dawson uh, with her uh, second case uh, for uh, tonight's discussion. All right. So my second case is West Virginia v. EPA. Um, so before I get into the case, let me just give a little bit of background. So in 2015, the Obama administration issued the Clean Power Plan, and this plan established guidelines for states to limit carbon dioxide emissions from power plants. Um, the Trump administration repealed the Obama Clean Power Plan, and it issued its own plan, which was called the Affordable Clean Energy Rule. And basically, that rule eliminated um, all of the guidelines that were articulated in Obama's clean power plan. So the DC circuit vacated Trump's rule, concluding that the proper um, procedures weren't followed. So when the Biden administration came into power, um, they indicated that uh, it wasn't going to follow either plan, the clean power plan or the Trump uh, affordable clean energy rule and said that it would issue its own plan in the fall of 2022. So at this point, there is no plan uh, relating to uh, the regulation of emissions from power plants that is currently in effect. Notwithstanding that, there were some states that brought suit in federal court, the Supreme Court decided to address the issue um, and basically concluded preemptively that the Environmental Protection Agency did not have authority under the Clean Air Act, which is the uh, federal statute that provides for authority of the EPA. And the Supreme Court said that uh, the EPA didn't have authority under this statute to issue guidelines in the manner that Obama did under the Clean Power Plan. And so this case is significant for um, quite a few reasons. So first, what I just kind of alluded to is there is no plan in place. And this case feels very much like an advisory opinion. There is no current uh, case or controversy. There is no plan that is currently being implemented. Yet the Supreme Court has decided to issue a decision kind of preemptively letting the current administration know what it is not able to do. And that uh, seems very inconsistent with the court's rules as it relates to what types of cases it can hear. The case is also very important because of the climate change 
implication. So what the Supreme Court is basically doing is tying the hands of the Environmental Protection Agency as it comes to, as it relates to regulating um, industry and power plants as it relates to emissions. Uh, so even though the EPA can still regulate emissions as it relates to, say, vehicles, when we look at the implications of power plants and the industry in this space, without having regulations and guidelines, it's gonna have a devastating impact on climate change. And the Supreme Court has basically said that um, the executive branch, their hands are tied. Um, the other implication here is what this rule and the analysis from this case will do when it comes to other administrative agencies. And so will we, when we're looking at uh, other ways in which the federal government or which the executive branch regulates other industries in other areas, is the court gonna limit those agencies as well when they are seeking to be progressive when it comes to regulating um, different spaces? Uh, this is also an example, one of the things that Professor Corbett said when he was giving his initial impressions on this most recent term, is it looks like the Supreme Court is you know, shooting their shot. Uh, and, and one thing that we've seen uh, commentators say in reference to this court is that they've got the YOLO attitude, which is you only live once, right? So while you have this majority, go ahead and use it every step of the way. And this is an example of that, where the court is being incredibly, um, uh, it's using a very heavy hand in promoting and pushing kind of a conservative agenda. And so when you look at the, um, the approach that the Republicans have had when it's come to the Supreme Court, they definitely have a membership that is willing to kind of go along that Republican playbook and render decisions notwithstanding precedent, notwithstanding, um, you know, there, there is no let's be incrementalist, which is the approach that Chief Justice Roberts tends to take but his vote is no longer needed, right? He is a six vote, uh, but there are five very strong conservatives that are willing to, as Professor Corbett said, go ahead and shoot their shot all day, every day. And they're shooting their shot. And uh, as, as my second case, I'm going to, to depart somewhat from the format that we're using uh, here and talk about a case that the court has on its agenda to consider. It has given certiorari uh, or permission to review a case called Moore versus Harper. And Moore versus Harper originated here in North Carolina when the North Carolina Supreme Court uh, authorized or decided that the congressional redistricting plan uh, enacted by the North Carolina General Assembly uh, had constitutional flaws and it was a, uh, a gerrymander uh, based on the race and partisanship. And it required the General Assembly to redraw the congressional uh, redistricts, uh, the congressional districts uh, that uh, it had drawn. Uh, as a result of that decision, uh, the uh, General Assembly then appealed to the uh, US Supreme Court and uh, presented a novel argument that has not been addressed by the court before. And that argument was that based on the, uh, the constitution that the legislature has the authority to draw congressional lines and no other uh, entity in the state can uh, rebut that. That the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court was without power and authority to review uh, that uh, enactment and to come up with uh, a decision that uh, there was racial gerrymandering or partisan gerrymandering and to order the uh, General Assembly to redraw those lines and that this is purely an enactment or power given to the General Assembly and they can exercise that power alone. And the uh, Supreme Court has now granted certiorari that is going to be one of the first cases that they will review in October of 2022 uh, going uh, forward. And that is a dangerous sign uh, from the political arena as to the power 
of the uh, General Assembly to enact uh, districting plans without uh, the oversight of the uh, top uh, judicial agency uh, within the uh, within that state. And here, it just happens to be uh, North Carolina. This is, uh, uh, again, chilling that uh, certiorari was granted, chilling further as what the, uh, general, uh, what the uh, U.S. Supreme Court is likely to do in light of what uh, Dean Dawson has just uh, informed us of and uh, Professor Corbett uh, authorized them to take their shot uh, at uh, this point since they now have that, uh, that power. Um, I'm gonna turn this over to uh, Dean Dawson at this point for some concluding uh, remarks uh, that, uh, that, and we're gonna come back and revisit some of these things uh, in the future anyway with, uh, uh, as more developments uh, occur. So Dean Dawson. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that we talk about, of course, in law school is the three equal branches of government. So, you know, the Supreme Court is just one of the three. You've got Congress and you've got the executive branch as well. Um, and so in the last few minutes that we have left, Professor Corbett and Professor Moses, can you two just share your thoughts about what Congress can do? Because a lot of the issues that have arisen Congress can impact. So for example, when we're thinking about uh, the EPA, right? Congress can enact a law that um, uh, clarifies what the administrative agencies are able to do. When we're thinking about uh, Roe v. Wade, Congress can pass a national law that actually provides for the right to um, abortion. Uh, and so, I'm seeing that our time is actually very short, um, but if each of you could just kind of give your thoughts, last thoughts on, on where we are and what the other branches might be able to do. Professor Corbett? Sure, so you, you've already hit it on the head. Congress can do a lot. Uh, it has a very broad scope of power, especially in conjunction to the Supreme Court. And the problem is that we have such partisan inertia at, con at the congressional level that has left open these vacuums for these really important issues, whether it's immigration or abortion or you know, any number of things, you know, including climate change that we just talked about, where because there's no congressional regulation, that, that gives the court the vacuum to be able to step in and issue these, uh, uh, these, these decisions, which oftentimes are done without the overwhelming support of the uh, of the population is not necessary because they don't have to have it. You know, they, they, they get to do as they do. And as long as you have things in place like the filibuster, you know, that, that keeps uh, votes from even coming to the floor, uh, then you're, you're gonna be stuck with this inertia. And we're at a point now where it's almost sacrosanct to, to now negotiate with the other side about anything. It doesn't appear to be where at least some of the voting base is. So, so as a result, we're kind of stuck, but you're absolutely right and the Congress can step in at any time and, and issue a national law that says that no pregnancies can be terminated in the first 18 weeks or issue a national law that says no woman who seeks to go from state A to state B uh, can be punished for doing so to terminate a pregnancy which, because it would violate the Commerce Clause. So. Uh, I'll be quiet now because I see that I've talked too much, but but yes, Congress has lots of latitude and it'd be nice if they would use it. Mm -hmm. Professor Moses, any final thoughts? The only thing I'd add briefly is with midterms coming, unfortunately, the only thing I see is them doing the opposite of what they should do, right? So to the extent there is any action to codify anything related to Roe, it'll be the opposite. It'll be the actual banning of the abortions. And that could just be my pessimism. Um, shining through, but just wanted to contribute that as well. All right. Well, thank you both. This is, you know, as you both noted, an incredibly consequential Supreme Court term um, like no other in recent history. And we will continue to look at what the response is. Um, so we'll have you both back in a couple of months and, and you all can share your thoughts and expertise. 
So we are out of time, but we'd like to thank our guests, Professor Don Corbett, who teaches constitutional law and critical race theory, and Professor Tamika Moses, who teaches criminal procedure and evidence. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.